Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Minsky. We are halfway to the millennium, not in the apocalyptic Christian sense, but in the arguably more important podcast sense. You are listening to the 500th episode of Oh God, What Now? The podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. To celebrate, we will be asking the public to throw street parties from Land's End to John O'Groats. But meanwhile, on this show, to mark our Romaniac roots, we'll be counting down the top 10 Brexit villains. Then, our special guest, migration and refugee expert Zoe Gardner, will help us understand the politics of immigration and how a Labour government might change both the system and the conversation. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, why are MPs swearing so much right now? And do we give a shit? Let's meet the panel. Raphael Bear is a Guardian columnist, author of Politics, A Survivor's Guide, and host of the Politics on the Couch podcast. Hello, Raph. Hi, Dorian. So there was a remarkable uh, PMQs earlier today. Um, the mother of the murdered trans girl, Brianna Jai, was um, in the House of Commons, not in the chamber, but everybody thought that she was. And Kirsten mentioned this. And then Rishi Sunak, in a kind of obviously pre-scripted uh, list of things that Starmer had you turned on, threw in uh, an anti-trans joke, which Starmer then called out. And everything, you know, the reaction blew up. Then Sunak spokesman doubled down and said, no, that was totally legit. And then Kemi Badenoch weighed in and accused Starmer of point scoring when she had done so much personally to take the heat out of this issue. Um, what are they playing at? I, the question suggests that there's some kind of strategic intelligence to this, which clearly there isn't. I mean, I, I suppose there it, it's a kind of a rational calculation in in hard-hearted Westminster land that once the Prime Minister has made a mistake, and very obviously this was a terrible, crass mistake, and you'd like to think that as a human being, he would just be sort of flinching forever when he recalls having said something that he clearly shouldn't have said. The, the, the judgment is you just never apologise, never explain, double down, it'll blow over. It just looks too weak to admit that the Prime Minister just said something appalling. Uh, what I think is interesting about it, I mean, and it was, we had to be clear here, they're just on a human level to make a kind of glib joke about this in the context of someone who's been murdered and that the murder victim's mother is in the House of Commons at the time. He's just he should be cringing for the rest of his life recalling that moment. And what was interesting is that Keir Starmer, who I don't think is a terribly agile politician uh, and also someone who, like Sunak, rely, over relies on script, actually was able to, I think, respond with what seemed like pretty authentic shock and outrage. And I do think to his credit, he is someone who is quite old fashioned in the sense of what public service ought to be. And he used to get genuinely quite affronted when by, by Boris Johnson's turpitude. And I think he was sincerely shocked at what, at what Sunak had done. And my sense is, and in fact, I was, I was talking to someone who knows the Downing Street operation quite well about this afterwards, uh, and said, yeah, it's basically a terrible operation. They have no agility. They won't have, have thought this through at all. And that Sunak will be immensely angry and he'll end up blaming whoever gave him that script rather than blaming himself for not having thought it through. But th I, I think there's no question that it's it, it looks terrible on him and reflects just badly on him, both as a political performer and just as a, as a character who's unable to adjust and respond to circumstance appropriately. Well, Nicola Sturgeon made the point that this is not the first time that Sunak has made a comment like that. It's the first time that Starmer has pushed back, and, and it's obvious why. But do you think that this is, could be a bit of a turning point in the normalisation of this language, that he's, he's actually sort of being compelled to point it out? Because then you have to go, well, why is it OK to make this remark 
if that person isn't in the building. Yeah, I think there is a dawning realisation, I think, in Westminster that though you know, people might have quite strong views on the extent to which trans rights should be rolled out and where and, and sort of policy questions of single-sex spaces and various other things or, or, or participation in sport, these are sort of policy questions, actually actively wanting to be spiteful and horrible to, to trans people is a tiny, tiny minority view. Most people are just decent, normal humans who recognise that it's complicated. And I do think that the sort of willful, more aggressive cultural warrior side of this that wants to stir it up, wants to capitalise on it, is discovering that's really not, mm. not only is it not where the British public is, it's not where their voters are. And I think actually Kemi Badenoch recognises that, which is why she has sort of understood she has to calibrate this a little bit better than some people in her party have done. Ros Taylor is the host of Jam Tomorrow and the author of The Future of Trust out very soon. Hello, Ros. Hello, Dorian. Uh, in scary robot news, Meta's oversight committee has ruled that a Facebook book video implying that Joe Biden is a paedophile does not violate its manipulated media rules because it doesn't use AI. But the committee also said that these rules are incoherent and confusing because, of course, there was misinformation before AI. So after all the fuss about disinfo during the 2016 and 2020 campaigns, have the social media giants learned anything that can make us feel better about this uh, election year? Not necessarily. I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? What, what happens when AI tells you that it's not AI? I'm looking forward to that day. Anyway, um, yes, they have learned quite a lot. Uh, they've learned that they really need to get politics off their public platforms. And they are realising that now, that it's a massive liability, and particularly with the advent of deep fakes. Now they're just getting harder and harder to, to identify. And that, of course, means it's harder and harder for the platforms themselves to identify them, let alone the public. But this realisation that they need to stop doing politics as much as possible on social media platforms, it's why Facebook has massively downgraded news and why, as a consequence, many media publications are very unhappy with the exposure mm. that they're now getting on Facebook. Why you can't have paid political campaigning on TikTok, for example, it's not allowed. And why parties are increasingly turning to WhatsApp, because we don't know what's happening in WhatsApp to other people that we can't see. Therefore, it's a safer bet in terms of media scrutiny of what they're doing. I mean, the bigger question, of course, is if it's this political debate is not happening on social media now, and perhaps it shouldn't be happening there because it's just become too toxic, then where is it going to happen among younger generations who aren't listening to exciting podcasts, watching TV news, listening to the radio, reading newspapers? Where are they going to talk about politics? I don't think there are young people who don't listen to podcasts. What? <laughs> <laughs> They're the best. Our guest this week is a leading campaigner and expert on UK and EU migration and refugee laws. You may have seen her fighting the good fight on your TV screens. It's Zoe Gardner. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Dorian. Um, King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer and has stepped away from royal duties to get treatment. Can you explain why this is Harry and Meghan's fault? <laughs> wow, putting me on the spot. Um, I no, it's it's not. Um, I think I think the whole question of how Harry and Meghan are treated in the media as and and also just like I've I've started watching the crown actually maybe that's where I should start with this I'm late to the party but I've started watching the crown and it's made me think that like this is just some kind of sick social experiment and you know I actually worry about the human rights of the people involved in the family as well I mean I don't I don't think that this is working for any of us and I think how we talk about these this family is just so totally disconnected to reality in any way, shape or form. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. I, I, I don't even want to go near it, to be honest. 
My advice on The Crown is don't watch Beyond Season 3. You'll just start to hate yourself. It just becomes so abject. Oh, well, I'd say stay on for Season 4. Well, apparently there's some ghosts later. Oh, wow. So that's something to look forward to. So um, uh, because of the Sunak news, we are unable to discuss the uh, popular conservatism launch of Liz Truss, but I'm sure this very important movement will um, pop up again in future. Before we get into the main show, a quick word about Patreon. Support for listeners like you is how we've got to 500 episodes, is the reason we've been able to hire young producers and researchers, launch our other podcasts, including Roz's Jam Tomorrow and my very own Origin Story, and stay proudly independent. And we're really grateful um, for everything that you've chipped in. Unfortunately, the podcast economy is becoming harsher and we're going to need your support more than ever. We know the economy is no picnic for anybody. But if you do want to keep us in rude health and you can spare the money, please do consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll get every episode a day early and ad free, plus access to bonus content and merchandise. Search Patreon Oh God What Now or look at the link in the show notes. Thank you. Okay, let's begin. Like I said, this is our 500th episode. We began in May 2017 with a real axe to grind about Brexit, I have to say. We, we just didn't like it. So for old time's sake, we're going to revisit the years of pain and count down our top 10 worst Brexit people, most of whom we would never even have heard of if things had gone a bit differently in June 2016. Obviously, revulsion is subjective, but we've roughly ranked them in order of power and influence. Here we go. At number 10, we have young-ish He's now 30. Darren Grimes to represent the new class of Brexit media grifters. Roz, why is he representative? Darren Grimes is quite fascinating, actually, because he's, you know, he's northern. He's kind of slightly authentically working class. He's gay. He's got that, you know, man of the people vibe going on. He could be Lee Anderson's nephew, right? Yeah, he's he's young. And that's the important thing, because most Brexiteers in the past have been quite ageing, quite posh, quite straightforward, should we say, in that, in that way. It's quite straight. But he isn't. And that adds something new to the mix. Now, he's not an expert on anything. Uh, he doesn't pretend to be. But he channels a common sense vibe. He's also benefited from his uh, early career. I won't even say career because I think he was still at university at the time when he was campaigning for the Lib Dems. And this is something that you find quite often among <laughs> Brexiteers. They're often they've been involved with the Lib Dems. When I was doing the research, yeah. And they've they've switched over. And what that actually gives them, I think, is an understanding of how people on the left think, which means that they can be slightly more effective at attacking them than that they might otherwise be. So yeah, he's he's a uh, oh he's remarkable, Darren Grimes. Is it Brexit that lay the foundation for GB News and this sort of American-style conservative news bubble? Yeah, it was, but not perhaps in the way you would expect, because GB News didn't start till 2021, right? And it started with Andrew Neil, and uh, he, of course, dropped out after a while because he just found it too, too, too extreme for him. But... What you had in 2021 was a realisation that Brexit had not really gone all that well. We had left. The promised benefits were not coming out. OK, we'd had COVID, which was going to get in the way, but all the same. What next? How do you consolidate that right wing populism when it clearly had an appeal or they wouldn't have won the referendum, mm. but the big project was failing? Where do you take that next? Well, the answer to that is you set up an alternative media empire. And that's what Sir Paul Marshall also used to be a Lib Dem, uh, and Legatum did in setting up uh, GB News. And Martin Daubney as well, another former left winger. And one of the purposes of GB News almost is basically to try and drive out mainstream TV 
news coverage. And they are very explicit about that. So not only do they hate the BBC, but if you look at Gavin Grimes recently, he's also been spending a lot of time having a go at Sky News. So what we've learned is that Lib Dems are like sort of cuddly little mogwai. And if you're not careful, they will turn into gremlins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think people realise after a while, oh, God, I might believe in this stuff. But hell, I'm never going to get any power. How can I get power? I've seen power. Now I want it. Where can I go to get power? At number nine, it's Andrew Bridgen, the Tory MP turned freelance conspiracy theorist for North West Leicestershire. Um, Raph, without Brexit, would he have been just a face in the crowd? We just never know who he was. Well, uh, there's always a vacancy in the chamber of the House of Commons for people to pontificate about their hobby horses and make a spectacle of themselves in that very specific arena. And you can imagine him possibly having been one of those people. I mean, Peter Bone, I put in this category as well. I mean, Peter Bone was known in the chamber of the House of Commons as someone who would just make a nuisance of themselves filibustering perfectly decent measures that other people wanted to vote for uh, and saying very right wing things. And Marc Francois also in this category, these people who... I think would have been sort of in, in the theatre of parliamentary democracy, the sort of second spear carrier somewhere on the side of the stage. And then suddenly they were thrust centre stage. And and the, the, the reason it happened, I mean, essentially, is that, I mean, so much of Brexit was essentially, was just bad policy and sort of irrational and unrealisable in terms of its aspirations. It was a sort of, they, they were so, it was founded in fantasy and the argument that you should try and implement it as if it was practical policy excluded all sorts of people. And it would be very difficult to actually find people to go on the media and defend it and talk about it. And I experienced this. I would go on uh, television programs and radio programs as the sort of Remainer voice. And they, they couldn't find a sort of an equivalently reasonable sounding lever because it was so hard. I like the way you make... specified that you're not reasonable, but you're reasonable sounding. Yeah, well, plausible sounding, <laughs> exactly. I could do an affectation of, of sort of seeing both sides of these things. They couldn't find that sort of symmetrical, analytical, I would say, approach. You needed people who would just say any old thing. Um, and then call it balance. And that suddenly thrust these people into prominence who really, you know, and I, I do blame the aspiration to a kind of false balance here. Uh, I mean, I, I was just struck the other day, actually, when the argument was now about uh, the, the Rwanda bill uh, and leaving the ECHR. And some of these people who had, had sort of slightly drifted back into irrelevance where they belonged suddenly were back out there and Marc Francois was there. Yeah. Like a, I think I described like a sort of a bead of sweat reappearing, glistening on the forehead of, of, of Westminster politics because that was the tone that the debate had taken. It was suddenly giving us all these Brexit flashbacks. At number eight, not one person, but a whole crew, the Lexiters, who thought that Brexit would be a coup for socialism. A Amazingly, that was not the case. Zoe, have do you think many of them had a change of heart? Um, I think I think like most of the rest of the country, like they nobody thinks it went well exactly. I think um, I, I deliberately didn't want to like pick out an individual here mm. because I'm actually not very keen to shit on the sort of left wing people who believe in um, a better future and had legitimate criticisms to make of the EU and how it functions in particular, for example, as regards how it treats refugees um, and, and migration, which is what I care most about. But I do think that it's interesting to look at what like the Lexiters were part of, which is, I think, sort of a tendency that two tendencies actually that have become much more prevalent and much more important in our politics at the moment. Um, one is just a refusal to adhere to basic objective reality. Um, and the other, which I think we really need to, 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 to keep at the front of our minds now, is that 
it's kind, it's kind of what you said, Ros, about, uh, you know, people work with the Lib Dems and believe in that and then give up because they don't think they're going to get power. For too long, for a very long time, those of us who are more to the left or believe very strongly in, in principles of human rights and um, uh, the need for collective emancipation and so on, um, have just sort of clung to the lesser evil um, and clung to a status quo that is quite obviously unsatisfactory um, in the hope that we won't lose what little we have and let things get much, much worse. And I think that was a major failure of the Remain campaign as a whole, which was just to fail to to, to present a vision for how things could be different and better. Mm. And, you know, that's obviously continued and it looks like it might be a serious issue again with Biden versus Trump. You know, and I think that also looking forwards for us, if Labour get in, but fail to provide real change, real vision, you know, impactful and, and in some cases radical policy changes in order to address that failure of the status quo, then we're going to look at people looking at an, an insurgent far right here and say, well, the sort of soft liberal option didn't give us the change we wanted and they're going to look for more radical change. So I think I think that's what the Lexeter lesson is. Mm. And they, they weren't the cause of Brexit, but I'm sure if it hadn't been a movement, then, you know, it was a close run bet. And maybe we could have changed things if we'd had a bit more vision, a bit of more willingness to imagine the world differently and to actually fight for that. At number seven, Brexit economist Patrick Minford, a Thatcherite who also has the honour of being Liz Truss's favourite economist. Ros, remind us of what are politely called his maverick views. Well, Patrick Minford was a leading light in something called Economists for Brexit. But it was a small, but it was an influential group. I mean, basically, his recommendation, shall we say, was that after Brexit, we shouldn't strike new trade deals. Uh, we should abolish all import tariffs. Now, you can imagine this might not go down very particularly well with certain people in Britain, farmers, for example, anybody who didn't really want their sector to be eaten out you know, by, by foreign competition. But that was his, his, um, his shtick. And he accepted that this would do terrible things to manufacturing and wage inequality. But he thought that the resulting shakeup would, would basically, you know, shake Britain out of its torpor. And the great advantage of, you know, having these beliefs is that you can argue it's never been tried, just like Liz Truss argues now that her uh, great plan was never fully tried because the markets turned against her. Had they stuck with it, then we would be in a we would be in a very, very different place and Britain would be booming. The reason the reason why I would mention him is that he acquired so much credibility. And Minford is a very good corrective to the idea that some people might have that because you work at a university and you're a professor, that you aren't susceptible to motivated reasoning. You absolutely are on every side of the political debate and he no less than anybody else. At number six, it's don't call them Hoover's maker, James Dyson, one of a number of celebrities and businessmen who supported Brexit. Uh, Raph, why is he so annoying? I suppose people are entitled to their view and if they're you're prominent figure and James Dyson is so iconic because of the Hoovers and the surprisingly powerful hand dryers. Uh, and so I can't, in a sense, hold his his democratic opinion against him. Uh, what I find slightly irritating about the phenomenon is that this is someone who who's in the business literally of manufacturing uh, and to have therefore advocated a, a position that took the UK out of the single market and the customs union. Uh, it was so 
I mean, the, the only word I can think of it is just stupid. It's such a colossally stupid thing to do. There's also, interestingly, he'd had a bit of beef with the EU over some regulations that, you know, in terms of the environmental protections that apply particularly, I think, to basically vacuum cleaners that have bags and his don't. And he got into an argument. And so... And, and he actually won a case at the European court, but then didn't get any compensation for it. So there's an element of just like petty spite that goes into this. And that I just think that is not the basis on which to use your public authority to advocate something that's basically going to harm the economy. One thing Remainers have often been told is, uh, of course, you should welcome people, you know, into the fold who have changed their mind. Um, but it does annoy me to see on the celebrity, on the music front, people like Roger Daltrey and Bruce Dickinson, who were adamant on the specific point that Brexit would not harm touring musicians and who are now complaining that it has harmed touring musicians and can the government do something about it? Uh, and it, it, it really annoys me. It's, it's like, well, it's a bit late now. And number five, it's Posh and Brex. Partners in Love and Brexit, journalist Isabel Oakeshott and Reform UK leader Richard Tice. Zoe, Tice I had never heard of before 2016. Now he leads a party that regularly gets 10% or more in the polls. So, I mean, could we say that he's one of the only people in the country who is really one big from the Brexit years? Well, he's certainly um, bringing in the grift. But I, I think, you know, there's there's plenty of sort of financial speculators who have done really, really well out of Brexit as well. I think he's not alone. I think what's what's particularly pathetic is that he's just so he's he's seen an, a model that works well, Big Daddy Farage, and um, he, he wants to do the same. And so now he's shouting nonsense from the sidelines. Um, but he's not as good of a politician. And uh, you see that because like his positions, actually, uh, apart from the ones that are just stupid, ill-thought-through nonsense to say something, like the net-zero migration thing that he, he and Oakeshott go on about, uh, also um, totally, totally out of pace with even Brexiters who remain Brexiters to this day. You know, like making a, a very, very outright cultural argument against migration, like, Stone Age. Um, and, and so he's he's even more pathetic from that perspective. So yes, he is benefiting. He's building a career and a very lucrative career. I don't really understand the workings of the Reform Party, but I understand it's basically a business model, not a, a normal political party. And and he's certainly a very rich man who's who's continuing to ha- have a make a lot of money and and be heard and gain power. So yeah, but I, I still can't help but look at him and think, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to be you, wouldn't want to be anything like you because you are such a small, small person and you can see it, that he knows it. Uh, and, and Oakeshott, I think, as a, as, a, as a terrible journalist and also representative of the way that in, in, in Britain that you can continue to be um, a journalist and sort of build as such on TV and taken semi-seriously, um, despite the fact that you are um, in a relationship with the um, leader of a political party. And number four, it's pseudo-brainiac Dan Hannan vying with Dominic Cummings for the title of not as clever as he thinks he is, but we're going to deny Dom the limelight this time. Roz, like me, do you enjoy rereading old Hannan pieces about how wonderful Brexit Britain will be? The utopian fiction. You mean Baron Hannan, don't you? Give him his proper title, Dorian. Yes, of course, he's been ennobled now. Yes. It's not altogether fair to call him a pseudo-brainiac. Daniel Hannan is a very clever man. He's also quite a naive man. Um... 
He's not really as much of an opportunist as your as a grifter as your normal Brexiteer, and you know he's long been opposed to membership. He has never been a Liberal Democrat, to my knowledge. He sat in the European Parliament for many years. He knows where mm. whereof he speaks. Uh, now he thinks we should have stayed in the single market, uh, which is nice to know. Uh, he's uh, very much been on a journey, but but fundamentally, Daniel Hannan is too naive for this shameless Brexit world he was sucked into. He he had values, and uh, those values could not be adapted to <laughs> to the project, and the, the, he's sort of semi detached from it as a result. There was a brilliant piece, very short piece, written once by Matthew Paris about Daniel Hannan, uh, who described him as a, a phenomenon that Paris himself recognised, having grown up not in the UK, but in a former UK colony, was steeped in this sort of nostalgic idea of the motherland, of what Britain is, that you only get when you're in somewhere, as in Matthew Paris's case, it was Rhodesia uh, back in the day. You, it, it cultivates this sort of anti-modern, anti-modern mm. Britain-ness, uh, that I think only Paris knowing it himself and having sort of repudiated it really nailed in, in Daniel Hannan's worldview. Yeah, he is a weirdly compelling figure. Yeah, I think he grew up in Peru, actually, which I don't think has ever been a British colony, but okay. but, but it's sufficiently far from Britain that I agree, Raph, you would, you would it's get... It's the expat phenomenon. Yes. It's, it's that sense of yeah. having an idea of the motherland well, elsewhere being in aspic in your imagination. Well, Paddington grew up in Peru and he's very <laughs> British. So uh, at number three, uh, David Frost, a.k.a. 1960s Batman villain Baron Frost. Raph, he is a former Remainer and former ambassador to Denmark. Um, he's been on quite a journey, hasn't he? I'm fascinated by David Frost. Um, the Well, first of all, let's just start at the end. The deal he negotiated, it was terrible. So you, know, you should be angry with him literally on terms of just having given away everything uh, on trade, uh, got nothing on services. It's just in, objectively for the UK economy, it was a terrible, terrible deal that he did for Boris Johnson. But also, you know, I think sort of more fascinating is the fact that he came from the foreign office uh, he argued in you know, his capacity actually as a lobbyist for the Scotch Whiskey Association for membership of the single market. He recognised this was after he'd left uh, uh, the, the Foreign Office. Uh, so he understood entirely the case for Remain. And then essentially what seems to have happened is he sort of hit the ceiling of his sort of natural capabilities, uh, both uh, in the diplomatic service, he just sort of you know, wasn't promoted by all accounts because he was pretty mediocre. Uh, he would say that because it was a sort of Europhile, Europhagic empire that obviously didn't recognise his true talents. Um, and then he drifted into sort of Boris Johnson's orbit somehow and then discovered uh, the thrill of, of political activism and ideological conviction. Uh, and someone who's worked with him and knows him quite well, I think, um, did this sort of cod psychoanalysis, which is that he's, he's sort of behaves like someone who discovers student politics as their midlife crisis. He became incredibly giddy and intoxicated by all the attention he was getting as someone who was mm. now, you know, up there with a the Jacob Rees-Mogg and in that world and getting a million of likes there. on Twitter. But in that milieu, that was, you know, that's rock and roll, right? For someone like that. Like, he's a Dickensian character. I, I think he be, wouldn't be out of place in a, uh, in a Dickens novel or, or a Chekhov short story as this weird clerk who somehow finds himself at the centre of something much bigger gets overly intoxicated by it. I get, after your psychoanalysis of uh, Barons, Frost and Hannon, I can see why you present a podcast called Politics on the Couch. This is, this is very revealing. Uh, all, Brexit was, <laughs> is, was all about psychology. It, it's the only way to understand so much of it. And that's true of Remainers as well, by the way. Our, our nostalgias, our romances, mm. uh, it's, it, it 
just unleashed something deep in the British psyche on both sides of the argument. And number two, no surprises, it's Daily Mail columnist and after-dinner speaker Boris Johnson. Um, Roz, he replaced Theresa May and won the 2019 election off the back of Brexit. But even now, I'm not sure how deeply he believed in it. I looked through his archive of mail columns since last August, um, and it's only in the headline of one of them. Looking back, what do you think Brexit meant to him? There isn't much that means stuff to to Boris Johnson. This is all just a means to an end to the greater power and publicity for Boris Johnson. It's true that he had long been a Eurosceptic. I mean, when he was Telegraph correspondent in Brussels, Mm. he was was, uh, writing Eurosceptic stuff. But that was just, as he put it, I think, to to throw stones into the greenhouse, listen to the shout when, when they went through and the smash. He just liked being provocative. And it was purely for personal advancement. In fact, I think perhaps... Perhaps no one except a man who so clearly wasn't a Brexit headbanger and true believer could have actually obtained Brexit because he made it a fun experiment that a reasonably intelligent person could support. Now, I say that in inverted commas, right? But that was how he presented it. Something that, you know, let's just give it a go. And that was really how it was won because although I think our number one person was main driver, it was only with Johnson that this was able, he was able to actually drive it through and make it something that your average Briton would think, oh yeah, let's give it a go. I have to say, I think um, that when um, Boris Johnson inevitably tunes in to this podcast as he does every week, um, I I just really take some pleasure in imagining how annoyed he is that he's not number one and he's only number two. So that is some comfort. <laughs> well, number one, top of the populists, can only be Nigel Farage. Um, Zoe, he has been called the most consequential British politician of his era. Is that regrettably true, do you think? Uh, deeply regrettably, it probably is. And um, I mean, what Farage has done more than anybody else um, is shift the Overton window of what what is acceptable, what is considered, you know, decent in politics. And I think that it it still amazes me that he he was smart enough to do it this way. You know, he, unlike Johnson, did not pay the price, is still, you know, massively influential, if 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 not more than ever. Uh, you know, Johnson did lose his crown and and was disgraced and you know I'm sure he's planning his glorious comeback but <laughs> for the time being Farage is still there being looked up to by a huge numbers of people driving the policy of the government by his own words and um you know when you look at what has come about since Brexit and why many of the reasons why so many people think it's been a failure well one of the major ones has obviously been uh, catastrophic outcomes in terms of refugee policy in the UK refugee risks being taken uh, the smuggling uh, across the channel all of that absolutely disastrous and and significant increase in numbers of asylum seekers with well, that after Nigel Farage like campaigned on the back of that breaking point poster where he said, you know, we must leave the EU because that will free us from the responsibility of having to care for the world's refugees. The 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 fact that it slid off him like Teflon, like that hasn't stuck and that people do not see the grift and the lie and the and the fact that it was always just saying the thing to whip up the hate that to get the result and never ever 
any basis and any kind of truth, anything that could ever be pinned down, far more so than Johnson, just absolutely opportunistic and with a really, really, really malignant and uh, damaging end in sight, which, you know, he, he continues to be a real threat um, and, and a real negative influence on our politics to this day. And even though it's so evidently the case that he has achieved his position through life. It's extraordinary, isn't it? How many of these are men? Like there's Isabel Oakeshott and then there's a couple of sideshows like Andrea mm. Leadsom and Gisela Stewart. But why? I think I, this is a question I want to ask Graf. Why are we only nominating men? It's a very good question, isn't it? I mean, Gisela Stewart it, it was, you know, part of a triumvirate of advocates, uh, you know, in 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 prominent in the Leave campaign, but has subsequently really not been a um, that had a significant role. And I think there is an element of you know that inherent machismo in just the pleasure of breaking things for the sake of it uh, that seems to be be sort of excite men in politics more than women, I think. I mean, I'm, I, maybe I, I'm happy to be corrected on that. But I mean, the current phase of the Conservative Party and where the right is going, I suppose, you've got your Liz Truss and Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman. Um, so that seems to be a form of right-wing populism uh, that everyone can join in. Yeah, that's although I think that's different, isn't it? Because that's about, there's a sort of an argument. I mean, Liz Truss was a Remainer, remember, in 2016. Uh, and there's an argument there, uh, as you said, it's a, it's a waging a, 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 an argument, a war on questions of identity and belonging, uh, and you know, in, in Suella Braverman's case, you know, border control. Um, but it's not that sense of of sort of breaking things. The, you know, that the, the the key point in in the Brexit, the pivotal moment, I think, really was constitutionally prorogation of Parliament, and that was Johnson uh, and Rees Mogg. In a sense, that was where it became an act of constitutional vandalism of the way mm. Britain run. Uh, and that I think that that sort of there's a public school boy element of 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 you know, recreational vandalism yeah. that was involved in. That's a very that's a very boyish thing, I suspect. We've been too round for but your emails recently, so in a couple of weeks we'll be doing a special section to round up some unanswered questions from our Patreon backers. And in the meantime, we have one from Mark Housen. I've been listening since your first edition and obviously love what you produce. You can stop there. But do you guys think you've made a difference over the past five years? Have you changed minds? I know that I am personally much better informed as a result of listening in. Obviously, the, the country is a much better place <laughs> for us. <laughs> Yeah, have we have we transformed national politics? Not yet, it has to be said. Um, has the public come to realise that Brexit was a mistake and that this government has been bad for the country? Largely, yes. Mm. Uh, were we kind of, this is a difficult question for us to ask ourselves, but it should probably be asked, were we partly responsible for the Remain Leave divide and the subsequent culture wars? Maybe partly, but pointing out the madness was arguably something that we had to do in order to save our own sanity and to try to save the country. And we made a lot of people feel they were going slightly less mad which i think that's is, is, a crucial point i think that sense that people uh you know it, it's one of the most remarkable things i think about the whole brexit process is that remain as an identity pro-european identity really came into being on the 24th of june 2016 and mm. all the way up to the campaign it really had that be a part of the reason the re referendum was lost is because you didn't have the subsequent energy that was created like by the shock saying, of yeah. defeat um and so uh, in that sense, although yes, I think the 
programs like this probably do are part of a polarization in some respects. They don't have many levers on the show. Um, I think that, you know, that sense of giving people a sense that it actually it, the levers didn't get a, an exclusive claim on what it means to be British. They didn't get an exclusive claim on national identity and they didn't get to be exclusively patriotic. That was an important space to carve out for a lot of people. Uh, well, I just thought I wanted to give people information and jokes. <laughs> so I think we did that. And I don't know whether we wanted to change minds. I thought actually sort of the point was that we could have a space where we could be like properly like opinionated and angry and um, rude uh, sometimes about politicians. Um and that that was actually really important. So I don't think that we we're ever expecting that some lever would tune in and be persuaded. I've always tried to understand why levers think the way they do. And that is, I think, important. And it kind of counteracts the polarisation a bit. Mm. I don't suppose I've always managed it, but I've over the years tried to give a sense of how they came to some of the crazier beliefs that they came to. Because for me, that's fascinating. And that's almost the most interesting thing. I did try. It turns out I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> Next up, the Tories seem desperate to fight the next election on immigration despite the fiasco of the Rwanda scheme and the unstopped boats. And Labour seem desperate to sound equally tough but more competent. That's basically been the shape of immigration politics for most of my adult life, but could it be different? Zoe Gardner is here to show us a better way. So famously, the issue salience of immigration plunged after the uh, 2016 referendum. It's been rising again. Um, how important is it politically right now and why? Um, right now, unfortunately, it is one of the um, most important political issues. Why is there's two ways to look at why is that one is simply because we have the government, at least one, if not two or three sort of single issue parties, and a, a significant chunk of the media of the country, for whom it is, for different reasons, a positive thing to do to make this the issue. Um, and that's why it has grown again in salience because, you know, 50 weeks out of the year, it's going to be headline news one one day of the week. Um, and so obviously people think it's important. Also, I mean, it's important in the sense that we're going into an election where, you know, it's, it's very clear, as you say, that the government is going to try to make this an election run on migration and that when they've almost certainly my gosh, touch word, um, fail at that and, and fail to be re-elected, their party is looking very likely to become an even more extreme version of an anti-migrant far-right party and that that will be the continue to be the issue that they seek to define politics in the UK on. So it's very important for us to tackle it as well from that perspective. And is it frustrating for you that migration is sort of this big sort of blob of a topic when of course that involves you know the, lots of different people uh and that can be you know somebody coming here because they've been hired of a job it could be somebody seeking um asylum from a war zone and yet it's all sort of migration and is the public in different places on those elements yeah um absolutely i mean i think that um one of the things that you know you look at like oh issue of you know third highest salience to the public is migration well if you ask people any kind of polling about migrants like what do you think should be this or that policy towards migrants what people are thinking of when you say migrants is uh refugees who have come on a small boat because that has been an, an overwhelming majority of the coverage conversation what the government is pushing um whereas that actually makes up about 
depending on how you calculate it, like, well, definitely well under 10%, 5 to 8% maybe of migration to the UK uh, last year, for example. So there's an insane disproportionality in how we talk about this. Um, there's also just the fact that when we talk about it in terms of just uh, numbers, uh, the framing is just consistently about uh, large numbers, growing numbers, a threat uh, of more numbers. Mm. Um then, then obviously people respond. You know, it, it's 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 not rocket science. People respond with fear and apprehension and and thinking that we need we need um, greater control, whatever that means. Whereas as soon as you know, polling uh, asks people about care workers, asks people about you know uh, the the by far the largest group of refugees, which is people who've escaped from Ukraine, um, ask people about people coming here to join their family members, etc. People have far more nuanced views. Um, the biggest group at the moment, students. People are largely, you know, very largely, very positive towards migrant students. And how often do we talk about migrant students? And then other than that, it's just always about the the boats. It's it's not accidental. It is deliberate. I mean, 30,000 people crossed on a boat last year. It's just, it's, it's something that the UK is so perfectly capable of handling humanely without any nonsense with Rwanda. Um, but yeah. Zoe, uh, Lee Anderson, the right-wing Tory MP, uh, said recently the Tories had failed to address what, what he calls illegal migration effectively as we were just talking about the boats crossing the channel. I'm sure your criteria to, to what illegal migration is are different to his. But why do you think that they've failed to stop the boats? Um, well, I have to give a rather boring evidence-based answer. It's not as uh, colourful or as exciting or probably as emotive as Lee Anderson would make it. Um, the the evidence is, is that um, people are on the move because they have no safety, no, no future, no um, possibility of continuing their lives in the countries where they come from. Um, some of those people, a small proportion, a very small proportion of those on the move worldwide, um, have links to the UK um, or reason to believe the UK is the place where they will be able to rebuild their lives. And um, they have a, they're in a situation of absolute desperation and they have not found the solutions that they do actually need um, once, you know, by the time that they have arrived on the French coast. And so they, they will seek to cross. As long as we close the border, then we create the hole in the border, the the official that you can bribe, the smuggling trade, the small boats. And, you know, this is just a shifting of flows that have existed for generations. Um, they're crossing on boats now. Previously, you know, the predominant method was to hide in the back of a lorry. There's some evidence that actually those um, routes are shifting again now in response to the current government policies. So this is not something new. It is not something overwhelming or scary. It is something tale as old as time. People move and you can't stop it. I suppose the, the, so, so the, the charge from the right will always be that the liberal left essentially wants open door immigration. It doesn't actually believe in controls. So it's sort of a, a, sort of a more reasonable centre-right proposition, which is, well, you can make the case in terms of, of economics and actually that the government has, has done that, which is why legal migration is actually going up. They haven't made the case necessarily, but they've actually have let lots of people in on work visas. But at some point, 
sort of contained in that proposition is the fact that there is a limit. And the charge would be that the liberal argument, they don't really want, they're a bit squeamish about conceding that, yes, at some point, perhaps there is a limit and you do need the control, but you just don't want to define it because it's much easier to just be on the opposition side complaining that whatever the right is doing is too draconian. So what is the, what's the kind of the liberal response to that? Say, well, yes, at some point there is a limit, but we don't know what it is. Well, I think there's two sides to my answer. So the first would be that I completely reject this notion of a a firm but fair position that we could reach that would satisfy um, the right-wing politicians or or movements that are benefiting so much from pushing um, always for further and worse policies forever. Um, as long as I've been alive and as long as uh, the politics, I've been able to follow politics, there has been a politics of restricting the rights specifically of asylum seekers, but also of all migrants. And, and there has never been a moment where anybody on the right has ever said, yeah, OK, we've reached the right point now. And, you know, you, you can see it at an extreme level now where Rishi Sunak is proposing to send every man and woman who comes across the channel to Rwanda without assessing their needs for protection, a country that has been found to be unsafe by our highest British court, and the right of his party is still paying for more blood. So I am sorry there is no... That there is no truth to the idea that there is actually the, the, this balance point where everybody reasonable can just agree at the end. This is not about finding the right um, solution for the country. This is about building people's political careers. So that's the first side. And the second side is that what is being presented there is a position that says, oh, you just want to let everybody in and we want to stop people. And it completely negates the reality that people come anyway. What we have now is a massive amount of fortification, militarization, and, you know, deadly um, and harmful policies being enacted. Nobody would call it control. So what would be a more controlled system would be one in which we actually recognize people's rights to move. You're not talking about more people. You're talking about the exact same people, just whether they move in chaos and by paying smugglers or whether they move through a system that we are in charge of, that we give people papers, that we know who they are, that we um, make the best of that for everybody. So the choice is not restriction versus open borders. The, The choice is chaos or control But the chaos is what we have now. And control would mean something that recognises the reality that people move and works with that. Zoe, last November you wrote in Open Democracy, is Labour ready for an immigration overhaul? Is it? How promising are the noises? Uh, I think that it's it's a mixed picture. Um, And I think that, you know, first first of all, what a Labour government has uh, said what what the Labour leadership has said uh, they would do in government is stop some of the immediate worst things that are being done by by this government. So random plan would be thrown out. That's incredibly positive. And and I think in terms of refugees, that's about as positive as it gets. I'm 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 quite wary that they um, unfortunately don't have enough of a plan to do the slightly more radical overhaul that is necessary to provide people with alternative routes to come to the UK. That means they don't have to come with smugglers and therefore fix the issue that people see of people arriving in chaotic and dangerous means. But on um, work migration, which is obviously a much bigger issue, I think that there is um, some positive to look at. I think that there is a serious willingness to look at it from the perspective of workers' rights 
um, to look at the failure of uh, successive Tory governments to adequately enforce um, minimum standards and to ensure that the visa system does not systematically produce vulnerability among migrant workers to exploitation. So I think that that's really, really positive and will make a massive difference. And of course, when we eradicate um, or or reduce exploitation from the labour market, um, even if that is aimed towards the most vulnerable um, group, which is migrants, um, we all benefit massively. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about this focus on on labour rights, because there has been uh, a history on the left of immigration hawks in the Labour Party and in the union movement on those grounds. So are you sort of saying that that actually there there is quite an obvious way that you can diffuse that by having, I suppose, a better settlement all around? Yeah, I think it comes to one of the like major issues about how we speak about migration in this country or like rather how we speak too much about migration and too little and in too little detail and with far too little honesty about other types of policies. Migration can bring lots of the uh, workers we need to fill uh, labour shortages and to do essential jobs in our economy, but it cannot ensure that labour standards are enforced. It's just as, you know, migrant House builders migration policy can bring in the skills that we need and the bricklayers and the and the electricians and so on in order to build uh, more housing, but it cannot um, fix um, the planning legislations and and the utter like utter utter failure of government or, or media to hold to account government for failing to have a plan to build sufficient social affordable housing for us and and it, it goes on. I think we are constantly viewing migration as sort of like the lever that we can pull that is supposed to fix or ruin our country in all of these ways. And in fact, <laughs> we need to have a country that functions. And then we we also need to have an adequate migration system that recognises that we need people and that people need to come here and that we can all benefit from that, but <laughs> it's not going to fix or ruin the, the the entire country, the NHS, the whatever. It's it's just, it's, it's only one part of the puzzle and we treat it as if it's the be all and end all. Well, finally, just to be clear, there are certain issues in the political life of a country that are just objectively very difficult. There are really sort of just challenging areas for whichever government with the best will of the world. And I wonder if you put all the politics to one side, do you think that actually finding uh, a sort of an equitable immigration system is actually something that is, it is very possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think I would have gone mad with despair long ago if I didn't believe that it was possible. I I do very, very strongly believe it is. And what's interesting about migration is is it's actually one of these things, if you look at the evidence, that um, the more you regulate it, that again, is what I was saying before, that actually you lose a lot of the control. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's it's true. If you look at freedom of movement in the EU, it's an extremely successful economic um, policy, both for sending states and for receiving states and for the migrants themselves. And one of the reasons for that is that most migration in its sort of natural state, quote unquote, is uh, regional circular. And what freedom of movement does in the EU is it allows that regional and circular movement. And the evidence shows us like, you know, refugee migration is a tiny proportion of migration as a whole worldwide. The, the, the real drivers of migration is labor, right? People need to support themselves. They go to the places where there are 
jobs. And when you start restricting migration, um, then you cause these severe inequalities. You create a situation where people have to take these all or nothing longer journeys to stay, um, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of whether that would be, you know, the most beneficial for them, the economy for anyone, um, and stay in some cases, you know, under the radar at serious risk of exploitation. So when when you make migration freer, it actually um, benefits us far more and we actually feel a greater sense of control. Thanks, Zoe. It's the end of the show, so it's time for the stories that went under the radar this week. Raf, what do you have for us? Uh, well, I mean, under the circumstances, it has to be Brexit, right? Uh, which is the introduction uh, of the paperwork, the bureaucracy for the importation uh, of goods from the single market in the customs union, which had been waived uh, previously because basically the UK and the Brexiteers realised that that would just be a complete nightmare and even worse for the UK economy than the imposition of the export controls, which the EU already applied back in 2021, has already caused. So although I don't think anyone around here is in the business of bringing in uh, cheese and other, you know, food or animal products from the EU, if we were, we would suddenly find ourselves with a lot of paperwork all of a sudden. But no one wants to talk about it for the reasons that have been discussed on this podcast many, many times before. Roz. Uh, my under the radar this week comes uh, courtesy of listener Charles Arthur. Hello, Charles. Um, he told me about a woman who went to tribunal because she hadn't paid capital gains tax on a house sale. And in her defence, she submitted a bundle of case law full of plausible sounding cases in which people like her had been let off. But it turned out that either she or her lawyers had asked chat GPT to come up with a list of cases like this and it had obliged. Um, the trouble was that it made them up. <laughs> so the lesson of this is if you are going to go to tribunal um, and uh, rely on case law, don't ask chat GPT for it. That's amazing. Zoe? Um, unfortunately, I have um, uh, an under the radar story of uh, the death of a young man, a migrant in uh, a, a lorry in Calais, which happened um, just a few days ago. Um, I, I know very, very little about this this person, I don't know where he had come from. I don't know his story, what he had fled, where, what his hopes were and what he believed he would find in the UK. But um, I think it's really important that, you know, every single one of those people who die at that border matter as much as I do, as much as you do. They they were people just as fully. We're starting to see what looks like an increase in deaths again at, at the border um, with France. I recommend everybody to take a look at um, Open Democracy's uh, series out this week looking at uh, an investigation into the deaths that have occurred at the French-UK border uh, since 1999 and and telling the stories of a lot of those individuals. Uh, mine is a, uh, it's about free speech. So we're often told free speech is uh, under threat, uh, by members of the free speech union. Um, and there were just two cases in the past week where it suggested really quite the opposite, that David Miller, former University of Bristol professor who uh, has been accused many, many times of anti-Semitism, um, won a, an employment tribunal ruling which said that his anti-Zionism was a protected belief. Um, and I was a bit startled by that. And then I was also startled that Ofcom ruled that it was fine for Neil Oliver on GB News to share a conspiracy theory about how vaccines cause something called turbo cancer. Um, because it's like, well, people could probably, it, it wasn't that big a deal and probably could work out that it wasn't true. And so it just seemed to me, well, actually, you know, there are quite robust free speech connections, even for people with colourful views um, about Jews and um, fantastical conspiracy theories. 
And that actually made me a little thinking maybe, in some cases, a little less free speech. And that's the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Raf. Thank you very much. And our guest Zoe Gardner. Thank you. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional salute to the generous supporters who have enabled us to get to the big 5-0-0. Remember, your support is the backbone of Oh God, What Now? So if you can afford to add to the fighting fund, then please do. Search Oh God, What Now? Patreon or follow the link in the show notes. Now here's some anniversary thanks to our latest backers. Hello, many thanks and 500th birthday wishes to new supporters Matthew Frost, Sam Ng and Fiona. Thanks for your generosity and best wishes from me to Rona, Jack Bergen, P.T. Becker, or P.T. Becker, as I've got here. Um, and also, if that's Jack Bergen, then to you also, Jack Bergen. And thanks for me to new backers Quinn and Stone, David Go Lightly, and a welcome back to Julian Webb. Thanks, everyone, and happy OGWN Day. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer and our guest, Zoe Gardner. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producer was me, Chris Jones, with audio production from Robin Lieburn. Video production by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. If you have any children in the room, you may want to save this for later because we're about to talk about swearing politicians and using words such as... Time to turn off now. Fuck, shit, twat, wanker, pranny and div. An article in Politico called Britain's Potty Mouth Parliament analyses Hansard to show that the use of expletives in the Commons has shot up in recent years, although it's still fucking unusual. Zoe, you have a theory about why there has been an increase in swearing. Yeah, I think um, I've seen this, obviously, you know, like uh, Lee Anderson, for example, a while back said that uh, asylum seekers should F off back to France. And um, that was in the context of a debate about a bill that they were passing through Parliament. But the only thing that I got asked about to comment on in the news was whether it was okay that he'd used that word. And he was top of the news agenda, which is Exactly. That was a teaser for the extra bit. If you'd like some more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then why not sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month? You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning, tasty merchandise and advance offers for live events. Thanks for listening and see you next week.